person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We already were in the midst of an explosive week with a series of advances in the January 6th investigation that is beginning to paint a picture of a sustained campaign to derail the presidential election, of which the insurrection was but a part. In particular, the submission of forged slates of Trump elector certificates in at least five states that went for Biden has the earmarks of a sprawling conspiracy run out of the White House. Then midweek, the focus shifted when just up the street, a bigger blast went off. Stephen Breyer, the oldest justice on the Supreme Court and the third member of the progressive wing, let it be known that he would retire once a successor to his seat has been confirmed. The timing of the announcement, which traditionally comes at the end of a term in June, means that President Biden has an ample cushion for an orderly nomination and confirmation process and seemed to suggest that Breyer had been considering the politics of his retirement after all. Biden, of course, had pledged in the middle of a presidential debate in South Carolina to appoint an African-American woman to the court, a move that might have saved his flagging candidacy. The focus now turns from Breyer to a handful of candidates with two or three in the forefront. Biden intends to select one by the end of February. To assess Breyer's legacy, handicap the nomination, and analyze the confirmation process ahead, and time permitting to weigh in a little on the burgeoning forgery scandal, we have a pretty damn amazing panel of guests, Talking Fed stalwarts all. And they are Laura Jarrett, the anchor of CNN's early start with Christine Romans, meaning she gets up every morning at 3 a.m. to bring us the news. She previously served as a CNN correspondent based in Washington, covering the Justice Department and a wide range of legal issues. And before that, she was a lawyer in private practice in Chicago. Laura, thank you very much, as always, for joining us. Great to be with you all. Bill Crystal. The founder and director of Defending Democracy Together, an organization dedicated to defending America's liberal democratic norms, principles, and institutions, and an editor-at-large at The Bulwark and the host of his own very popular video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. He previously served as a senior official in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, and of course, he founded The Weekly Standard in 1995 and went on to edit that influential magazine for over 20 years. Bill, as always, thank you so much for being here. As always, great to be with you. And Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, since 2007, the junior senator from Rhode Island, he previously served as the United States attorney in the District of Rhode Island from 1993 to 1998, where I think we maybe overlap for a week or two. 
And after that, the 71st Attorney General of Rhode Island from 1999 to 2003, before being elected to the Senate, where he serves on the Judiciary Committee, among others, and where, for my money, he's the best questioner on the committee. Senator Ed Whitehouse also has written two books on virtues, quotations, and insight to live a full, honorable, and truly American life, and Captured, the Corporate Infiltration of American Democracy. Thank you so much for joining us, Senator, especially on such an important week for the committee and the American justice system. Great to be with you. And speaking of which, so this week saw a Supreme Court vacancy, always a rare and huge development in Washington, though this one may be less than the previous few. Let's pause uh, a few minutes to pay homage to the retiring justice. So in considering Stephen Breyer's legacy, I think there are some competing strains to grapple with. A few, really. Starting here. So he saw himself as a pragmatist. His writing, however, was, I think, technocratic and his personal manner was professorial and not what you would call down to earth. What will be his distinctive role on the court he leaves behind? I think by all accounts, it is fair to say Justice Breyer comes from a time in which the justices felt that there was some value in consensus building. He seems to care about an idea of bipartisanship, not just for the sake of it, because he actually thinks the decisions are better that way. He seems to come from an era in which deals were made, and it may not have been the exact decision you wanted, but it was better to have those five or even six or seven votes to make the court's image hold up as one that was not purely partisan. And whether or not that played into his decision to retire, I don't know. And and maybe it doesn't. But he does seem to come from a different ilk than what we currently see on the court. And maybe even a different time, right? Many of the retrospectives, I think the most sophisticated ones, are picking up on just that theme. Linda Greenhouse calls him the quintessential enlightenment man in an increasingly unenlightened era at the court. You know, this sense that he's sort of of the past and the court is no longer so courtly. There's an essay today in the New York Times. I'll quote it. It kind of encapsulates this perfectly. Justice Breyer's faith in the fair-mindedness of Justice Samuel Alito et al. is seen as, at best, a blinkered sort of optimism and, at worst, a dangerous blindness. Let me frame up that question. Will he be remembered as he wanted to be politically savvy and building bridges or as some of the retrospectives are having it? basically as a romantic who stayed to this ideal or espoused it even as it was completely disregarded by the conservative majority. I mean, I'm not a professional court watcher. I'm not even a lawyer. You're the only one. There has to be one same commonsensical person in that group. I think that's totally unfair, really. What did his wish for consensus and his civility lead him to do that he wouldn't have done if he were more of a left-wing fighter? He wasn't exactly suckered into a bunch of, to my knowledge, right-wing decisions, was he, on the court? He was a pretty reliable liberal vote. He was from an earlier generation. He was put on the court by Jimmy Carter. What was that, like 78, 79? I audited a few sessions of his law school class when I was in grad school at Harvard in political science on antitrust, which I think was one of his actual specialties. And that's how he came to public attention as kind of a liberal who believed in deregulation in some ways and antitrust, and I think in a good way. And Ted Kennedy, I think, was his 
proto, you know, helped get him the appointment from Jimmy Carter. And then obviously President Clinton appointed him to the court. So, but in manner, he was of a different generation, you might say, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, incidentally, and going to the opera with Nino Scalia, I guess. I think that the fact that the left has so internalized the notion that we need to fight and the right wing fights and is rude and is horrible and our people are too nice. What, practically speaking, did he not do that he should have done? by being nice. I'm pretty dubious about that critique. You know, it's an excellent point. I don't think it's just a rhetorical question. He's a classical liberal, I think, in the sense of believing government and the live measure was what it did for regular people. That's how he sort of announced it in 1994 when he was nominated. I do think there are at least times when he was considered to have temporized, moved right relative to the other three. A very good example is Bush v. Gore, where he and Souter take a stab at an equal protection rationale in those feverish days to try to have some consensus. Would you agree, Senator, that he'll go down on this sort of liberal conservative scale as a kind of down the middle lib? Because that might matter a little as we think about his replacement. It's a monolithic conservative court, but will it nudge things a tad left or on this way of thinking of it, not really change things even a smidgen? In terms of what he did, I think he was a pretty consistent, moderate liberal vote and voice. I think the measure of differentiation between him and the next appointee might be what he did not do. And I do think that the court has to grapple with some of the realities around the court right now, like that it's very widely publicly known that the Federalist Society was given the right to pick the last three judges, that they ran more or less of a turnstile at the same time that they were taking huge anonymous donations, which is an awkward combination. The political funding that supported the nominees went through these kind of creepy front groups like Judicial Crisis Network. And now you've got these enormous arrays of anonymously funded amici curiae who show up in little orchestrated flotillas or sometimes big orchestrated flotillas. And to act as if none of that is happening when it's happening in plain view, I think is going to damage the court in the long run by not disciplining the people who are accommodating those interests. And if you want a specific, the court in Citizens United made a finding of fact that all the unlimited funding that they unleashed was going to be transparent. And first, they shouldn't do findings of fact. That's not what appellate courts are supposed to do. And second, what is it now, $7 billion later? We know that that finding of fact was just dead wrong, incontrovertibly wrong. And over and over again, the court turned down chances to correct that mistake. And it was an opportunity, I think, for Breyer and others to say, hey, wait a minute, we have a problem here and push harder on cases that would have allowed them to fix it. You would hardly know from the judges on the other side of Citizens United that this problem of fact-finding existed or that it is now incontrovertible that the fact that the court found on which, you know, not a passing fact, but the fact on which the decision hung was actually false. So there are areas like that where I think you need to be more pointed in your analysis and more broader in your scope. I think that's a fair point, actually interesting point. On the other hand, I would just say is we don't know, obviously, what happens behind those closed doors. 
We don't know whether Justice Breyer had some effect on the Chief Justice, on John Roberts over the years. We don't know whether he had some effect on the newer justices at times, whether it's Kavanaugh or Barrett. And I do think if you're on the liberal side, there have been some decisions where you have been pleased that Roberts has not gone along with all of his conservative brethren. And in fact, Barrett and Kavanaugh at different times have split. That's where a Justice Breyer, and I'd say the same of all of them, actually, Kagan and Sotomayor, too, by being of a certain kind of older school manner, which isn't inconsistent with what Senator Whitehouse is talking about in terms of perhaps analysis and way of thinking about the law. But that matter may have had some effect. We don't know, obviously. And I don't think justices are, you know, they're not kids. They can rise above you know, someone being courteous to them or nice to them. That's not the most important thing. But also respecting their arguments and not kind of berating them, let's put it that way. We don't know. I don't know if he had a particular effect, for example, on Roberts. I was struck by the warmth of Roberts' statement and the personal character of it, for whatever that's worth, but I don't want to get into sort of excessive tea leaf reading here. He really was unfailingly courteous. And I I do want to add just a few maybe inside baseball points. To your point, Senator, the way they would need to do that is agenda setting. And he's been in this tricky position for years because it takes four votes to take a case. But if there are four of you and you think the other five, if you take that case, are going to go the other way, that makes it tricky. The second point I would make is there were a few times where he flashed real liberal fire. Most famously, he reads from the bench for 20 minutes in 2007 in a dissent in the Seattle case where uh, the court plurality prohibits Seattle from doing voluntarily affirmative action. I helped prepare him in 94. So I was there for the Rose Garden speech that I mentioned, and I was really struck yesterday. So in 1994, he is very sort of optimistic, laws the works for ordinary people. And I kind of thought it was telling that he shows up in 2022 with the Gettysburg Address and says, we are now engaged in a great civil war to determine whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. I thought there were maybe some, for him, very much the patrician polite man, some barbed comments about what's happening in the court. Maybe not. Let's segue by talking just briefly about his actual resignation decision and the timing. I know, Laura, you spoke this morning to his brother, Chuck. I'm reminded of the Shakespeare line, nothing in his Supreme Court tenure became him like the leaving of it, because it will stand in memorable contrast, say, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What do you think? He leaves now. It's January. Normal time for announcing is the end of the term. Probably his plan for a while, yes. And even though he wants to be seen as apolitical, he's obviously got in mind not getting his successor caught up in some brouhaha. Laura, what's your thinking and what was Chuck Breyer's thinking? So his younger brother, who was kind enough to wake up for me at 2.30 in the morning, he's a judge on the Northern District of California, could not have been more, I thought, frank and open and forthcoming. And he said, look, of course, politics played a role in it, which was an interesting revelation, given that his brother has spent the better part of a year on a book tour saying the exact opposite. And other members of the court have felt the need to make that sort of protestation. The court sort of rises above instead of the legal reality of what we all know is true. And he said his brother had considered it for a year which I thought was interesting timing. And he didn't mention Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but it had to have played a role because he said, look, typically if you're been appointed by a Democrat, you hope that the person who replaces you is appointed by a Democrat. And he clearly tried to time this in a way 
to do President Biden a favor. He knows that Mitch McConnell has invented a makeup rule about not confirming a several makeup rules, several makeup rules. But if for whatever reason, the balance of power flips in the midterms, that's something that Justice Breyer pays attention to. And he's paying attention to the timing here. And he's clearly trying to give enough wiggle room and enough space with his health in good order by all accounts to try to set this up for President Biden's success. And I think his brother was very forthcoming about that, which I found fascinating at 2.30 in the morning. I have to agree. And in, in retrospect, I think he was somewhat arm's length about all the pressure campaign on him in the last fall. Like, let me let me just do it myself. Right? Exactly. Can you guys just calm down? I'm going to take care of this. That's probably what he wanted to say. Exactly. All right. Let's stick with McConnell for a second and move into the sort of confirmation politics, if we could. So the conventional wisdom, I think, just from the last several years has been, oh, the Republicans will dig in for a fight. And you've heard Josh Hawley and I think Senator Kenny coming out kind of talking tough. If I could start with you, Senator, it seems to me that the Republicans don't really want to fight a long fight only to lose it. And they think that Biden has the votes. Manchin and Cinema have never voted against any of his nominees. Even if they talk tough about liberal activism or whatever, do you think that they'll actually just want this to happen pretty quickly? Or do you think that they're back there now plotting a, a whole new stratagem for upending the nomination? It's hard to tell now, but I do think you're right that our instinct to believe that McConnell is going to go the path of no holds barred parliamentary warfare at all costs because this is a Supreme Court seat may not prove to be the strategy that they choose to follow. And the reason that another strategy might be useful for them, even assuming all the worst motives, the strategy actually might be better for them to have this be as normal a process as it can be so that the court in the spotlight has a moment of seeming normalcy so that they can continue to run what is a 6-3 majority. It's going no place. All this does is change who the three are. They still have their partisan supermajority Federalist Society machine. And it may very well be that to them, pushing it to 7-2 or creating a row is far less valuable been creating a veneer of normalcy to protect a court that has gone way into the rumble strip and out of bounds on a whole lot of different issues. And is poised to make all kinds of trouble in the next many months. All kinds of trouble. So this may actually be strategically the sound thing to do. It might be to go as calm and as orderly as possible and try to convince everybody, nothing to see here, folks. Keep moving. This is just the old Supreme Court you knew about. And maybe it oddly retroactively legitimizes a little their last few episodes. Yeah, I strongly agree with Senator Whitehouse on this. I mean, people are McConnell, you know, I used to know somewhat better and have a spoken to in a few years, but he's a tough guy politically and maybe not entirely scrupulous all the time, but he's an intelligent political operative. What does he know is going to happen on July 1st within a few days? Roe v. Wade is either going to be severely restricted or overturned. Let's just leave aside all the other issues a minute. What climate do you want if you're McConnell? for that to happen in. You want the courts to discuss this, and even though the new justice wouldn't be on at this point, and the court is surrounded, as as Sheldon said, by a kind of aura of legitimacy and comedy and respect, 
And that minimizes a tiny bit, he might hope, to backlash and allows people to say, well, it's a judicial decision. Now, if we're at the state level, I think they're nervous about such a decision, obviously, in a bunch of Senate seats coming up in states where the Republican kind of absolutist pro-life position is going to be pretty far to the right of the electorate, I think, in those states. And so I very much agree that McConnell may, well, whatever he personally votes, we can't control what Hawley and Cruz say and stuff, but you could easily get 15, 20 votes, I suspect, for confirmation and an attempt here, McConnell has a little less ability to control it, to have the hearings and Senator Whitehouse's committees be civil and for people to behave respectably. On the other hand, the degree to which if you want to be the Trumpy nominee of the Republican Party in 24 or a Trumpy vice president or just be a Trumpy leader after McConnell, the incentive to be a really shameless demagogue is pretty great. So I think you could have a Republican Party going in two pretty different directions with McConnell lieutenants, let's just say like John Thune and people like Portman and Toomey who are retiring, Lindsey Graham perhaps, sort of trying very hard to go super civil a little bit as happened incidentally with Kagan, I would say, don't you think, under, to take an earlier Democratic appointee or with Justice Roberts. I think the Democrats split 22-22 on Roberts' nomination. I happened to look that up the other day since Obama had voted, actually I've forgotten, had voted against it. But you can imagine that kind of outcome. So heated rhetoric from Fox News and conservative Trumpy types and an attempt to damp down the rhetoric, though, on the part of some of the more establishment Republicans as part of the much broader Republican strategy of trying to keep both parts of their party somewhat feeling like they have representation there. If your predictions are true, which I, I agree with, that's sort of an extraordinarily unremarkable circumstance for the first Black Supreme Court justice to find herself in. You can imagine even 10 years ago, it being virtually unheard of for a president to say explicitly on the record that he's taking race into account in making his decision and making the kind of pledge that President Biden has made. I can't imagine a president doing that before Biden. So put that aside to one moment, but then to have it essentially not even be an issue aside from some racist grumbling from some outliers in the party, for the majority of the Republican Party to go along with that, even if they don't vote for whoever she ends up being, not doing an all-out assault on her, that would be extraordinary. I guess the closest analog would be Marshall here because H.W. Bush said it had nothing to do with race. LBJ was pretty express about it, and Marshall did get a pretty rough time in the committee, though he eventually passed handily. Harry, imagine Barack Obama trying to say, explicitly, I'm going to put the first black female justice on the Supreme Court. Can you even fathom that? And if we go back to Mitch McConnell for a minute, yeah. first of all, I think in his personal reputation, he would feel that to have a more or less clean nomination process separate us from the three in a row in which he did great violence to the institution helps to insulate him from those unfortunate episodes. And if he's looking at Georgia, and other races yes. in which they're working very hard to suppress the African-American vote, the black vote. The last thing you want is to have a bunch of your white senators beating up on the first black female nominated the Supreme Court. Yes, That's, yes, and yes. That is not good for him winning those races. So interestingly, although habit and precedent would say he goes to the mattresses on this, the political logic behind this in a lot of respects would say, what the hell? We've already won this game. And our talking point will be, look how nasty the Democrats were to our nominees and how nice we are to theirs. Whatever the motives, it would be good for the country if we had a civilized process. And if 
whoever the nominee is gets to discuss her views on various constitutional issues in a civil way. The general discourse stays at some level of intelligence and civility. That I have great doubts about because whatever McConnell wants, the Trump Republicans don't like McConnell anyway, right? President Trump spent half his time attacking him. And so the degree to which we will have a Fox, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz thing going on out there, sticking Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson, shouldn't be underestimated. Well, the presidentials are a different category of cat. Totally. It'd be interesting to split, for example, right-wing media for people who follow this kind of thing. And that is, I think Fox will be in a different wavelength than the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which will probably want to be a little bit, raise all kinds of terrible progressive, very worrisome progressive, but more, I would suspect, interesting Katess case. How far do they deviate? They've been horrible, in my view, in being a kind of highbrow rationalizer and enabler for Fox, which in turn is now a middlebrow rationalizer and enabler for even worse things like Steve Bannon and OAN and so forth. But would the journal on this one find its kind of upper middle class constituency wants a different tone than Tucker Carlson? And would they give it a different tone? This is an interesting political question. How much would a sort of split on this last beyond a week after the confirmation, would they all get back in gear for the fall campaign pretty fast and for attacking Democrats as socialists and critical race theory and all that? I suspect the answer is they could get back in gear for pretty demagogic attacks pretty quickly, even after two months of civility. They could even do both at the same time. Right. And I'd like to talk about the candidates some. My sense is that this kind of calculation doesn't depend on who among at least the names that are being bandied about currently is ultimately selected. Agreed? Correct. I wonder if there's some possible divide of interest between the Senate and the White House. So first, as I think Bill noted that what 50-50, somebody could get COVID, somebody could get hit by a bus and everything would change. And all the talk to date from Schumer on down has been we're going to do this quickly. Possibly the White House is thinking they, they've been getting beat up fairly badly, whether justified or not, on COVID and the economy. And now this is a kind of victory lap. Maybe he wants to take it kind of jogging and slow and have this be in the headlines for three months. So do you think there'll be any kind of tension or dynamic discussion between the White House and the Hill about how long the process takes? Yeah, I suspect so. And, you know, what they say in military matters, the enemy gets the vote also. (laughs) And how quickly the Republicans want to let this go through the committee and how much they want to wait for documents and hold us to our past cries of pain as they've rolled over things they've done to <laughs> us. All of that is, is very much TBD. But I agree with you generally that this is not a bad topic for the Biden White House. And to have it roll out for a bit will probably do them no harm. But even that can be done, I think, with what they've called deliberate speed. Yeah. What about your colleagues then? Are they nervous enough that they'll want to just go Amy Comey Barrett timeline? I don't think there's any need to hinge on that. We have until the end of the term. It's not a painful topic to be on for a number of reasons, including just Senator to Senator Comity trying to dial down a little bit. The bad behavior is not necessarily an unwelcome thing. It's hard to tell right now, but I think we're probably working towards a couple of months on this and being ready by the end of term. Hi. 
This is Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket. I want you to take a second and ask yourself this question. What did you do when democracy was at stake? If you don't have an instant answer, here's an easy place to start. Subscribe to my free newsletter at democracydocket.com. It breaks down the latest in voting rights, redistricting, and democracy. Remember, you can't fight voter suppression if you don't know it's happening. Subscribe now. Let's talk a little bit about the content of the hearings, which, as Bill pointed out, is often not so edifying. Greg Sargent in The Washington Post has an interesting article today or suggestion. So assuming that the Dems suss it out the same way that McConnell does and think they're probably going to win, other than showcasing the nominee and all the points to be gained for the first African-American woman, Sargent says what Democrats should do is use the confirmation hearings to highlight the long-term stakes of allowing the rights energy and commitment to the court to continue dominating which would be, you know, a delicate task, but possible. Any thoughts about that or thoughts about broader agenda other than confirmation to use the hearing for? I'm not going to disagree with that because I spent my time in the Kavanaugh and the Barrett hearings going through the whole dark money structure that was behind all of this and that attacked the court and that is behind the sleeps of phony amici curiae and the whole kind of right-wing echo chamber. And it actually went over well enough that right-wing media exploded with fury and rage <laughs> that I'd had the temerity to discuss any of this. I mean, that really was the biggest spotlight on the issue that there's yeah. been the whole time because it's a well-watched event. And also because a lot of the back and forth between candidates and senators is so scripted and has been dialed down to so little content that the meaninglessness level of a good deal of the engagement is very, very high. Go back 30, 40 years and look at transcripts of hearings. The questions and answers were much different. Now, every time a judge gets away with not answering a question, that sets a new boundary for refusing to answer questions. And there's not a lot of there there in the back and forth ordinarily. I think it's a little complicated. I mean, it's interesting, though, when you think about it this way, and it's good that you posed it this way. It's a little more sophisticated way of thinking about it, I think, than the typical sort of looking ahead. How ferocious is Ted Cruz going to be? Whatever. If you're President Biden, the most important thing for you is that you nominate someone good who does a good job in the hearing, who is an impressive candidate. You get 20 Republican votes. That candidate, she will have has a good approval rating. That spills over a little to you. I mean, the president is helped if he nominates someone who gets a lot of praise, presents very well. Her record seems very impressive and then gets 20 Republican votes. A lot of voters out there say, oh, okay, well, that's good for Biden. And a G, they told me he was a crazed socialist who was going to destroy the Supreme Court and increase it to 15 members. And all this, it turns out he's appointed someone that even these Trump supporters like Lindsey Graham say is an impressive person. And I read about how she was the first editor of the Yale Law Review, whatever, right? I mean, you, that's good for Biden. So the first order White House thinking will be, since they always think in this way first, right, will be, we want it to go well, we want it to go smoothly, we want the candidate to present well, we want a lot of praise from everyone. That's not trivial in terms of an upcoming off-year election, where one of the determinants of the vote is Biden's general approval rating. Now, can that be combined with a sort of ambitious Sheldon White House type secondary agenda, I'll call it, of defining the issues 
coming up of defining the way in which the court has operated and the other things that have been done of laying the predicate for the debates that are coming on issues from Citizens United type issues to Roe v. Wade? And I think the answer is probably yes, but there's a little tension maybe or they're two different things, I guess you might say. And I think the White House will have a particular interest in the more simple. We want Joe Biden to have a little point or two bump in his approval rating out of all this by the time it's over and have our candidate confirmed. Thank you. I agree also from the point of view of moving forward, it would be a bit of a missed opportunity not to do a little bit of laying the predicate for the broader debate on the Supreme Court that surely is going to happen after the decision on the Mississippi case on Roe at the end of term. And next term with the affirmative action. And there's just no better time to frame the kind of debates. On the other hand, is there a risk that the Dems seemed, you know, either churlish or like, what are they talking about? They're not taking yes for an answer. It turns out the country isn't so horribly racist that it's unwilling to accept the first black woman. In fact, she gets a lot of praise from a bunch of white male Republican senators. That's a good thing, right? I mean, you can't be so cynical and so sort of thinking ahead of the curve that you sort of pass over the evident thing that's happening in front of you. So that's where it does get a little complicated. But I think different people can do different things and outside groups can do different things than the White House does. And some senators can take one role and some senators can take other roles and so forth. But that also requires a fair amount of coordination and organization and nuance that I'm not sure thus far we've seen, aside from Senator Whitehouse, particularly well executed at some of these hearings. Really? The Democratic Party, Laura? They're they're great at that. No problem at all. (laughs) I'm speaking purely as a journalist who has observed these hearings. Sometimes the desire to amplify one's own platform seems to get lost. I also just think we can't forget the nominee's feelings about this. And she may have no say whatsoever, but I can't imagine as highly well-qualified as each of them are wants to be dangling out there forever. Given our current media ecosystem, somebody somewhere is going to find some tweet from one of their kids or some college essay one of their husbands wrote on critical race theory, and we're going to be off to the races. I can see where this is going the longer the person hangs out there. That is a really good point. And yeah, we forgot one important constituents here, which is the nominee. I remember this from Elena Kagan's confirmation. Lindsey Graham asked her what she thinks about Miguel Estrada and would he be a fine Supreme Court justice? I think thinking quickly, it's not necessarily a position that the Obama administration would want. But at that point, screw the Obama administration. Absolutely, Senator. At the end of the day, they do have to have some self determination. And how many hours did we spend litigating whether Justice Sotomayor's background as a Latina should or should not factor into her ability to be a good justice on the court? Obviously, it's a different environment than it was when she was nominated to the bench. But again, everything that they have ever said will be picked apart. And the longer they dangle out there, the more I'm sure they feel exposed. There's literally a fatigue factor. But can I just say one thing on this? Because this is Sheldon's point earlier. I there's a real risk of it. Republicans overplaying their hand or some Republicans overplaying their hands in ways that will be off-putting to some potential Republican voters. I live in Virginia. I saw my neighbors who want to kind of go back to a Republican party that, in my judgment, doesn't exist, but they want to hope exists <laughs> and that they used to vote for. And so they went back and voted for Glenn Young. A little different, not a federal race. It's a governor's race and so forth. There's a lot of those voters, in my opinion, in Pennsylvania and in Georgia and in other key swing states. If they see a Republican party that seems unwilling to accept extremely well-qualified 
current judge for justice, either at a state court or in the federal courts, who's been confirmed, therefore, for those positions and who has a good record and seems as no scandal shows up. If they see a party berating that person, I do think you can dislike the Republican Party all you want and think 40 percent or 60 percent or 75 percent of it is bigoted and open to these kinds of appeals. But 100 percent of it isn't, not of their voters. Right. And there's a real risk, I think, that you end up with a Cruz Hawley Tucker Carlson looking Republican Party with a sort of personal symbol that they're attacking, not critical race theory in some general way, but an actual human being who seems mm. to have lived an impressive and admirable life. And that could really be a bad, that could backfire. That's why McConnell, I think, probably is thinking this and is hoping he could shut up all, shut up Fox News and, right. and Ted Cruz, but that's not so easy, right? By the way, for the record, Harry Lippman just gave us a really good mustache <laughs> twirl. Mustache. The, in terms of the, the villain image. Okay, it's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today we want to focus on one of the notorious actors in the January 6th period, Jeffrey Clark, who as a sort of middling official in the Department of Justice tried essentially to take over the department with the support of President Trump and improperly and inaccurately tell the state of Georgia that its count had been flawed or compromised. So he's a big actor who will figure in the work of the January 6th committee and possibly the DOJ. And to give us the basics on Clark, we have the one, the only David Johansson, best known for his tenure fronting the hugely influential New York Dolls, David Johansson is a true chameleon. Throughout the course of a career that has seen him transform from a proto-punk hero with the Dolls to performing jazz, lounge, and calypso as Buster Poindexter, he's appeared in numerous acting roles, maybe best known for playing the ghost of Christmas past in Scrooge and throughout his versatile career, he remained a rock and roll original and an unpredictable iconoclast. All right, I give you David Johansson on Jeffrey Clark. Who is Jeffrey Clark and what role did he play in the 2020 election's big lie? Jeffrey Clark was an acting assistant attorney general, not one of the top officials at the Department of Justice. In the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election, Clark's attempts to further President Trump's efforts to invalidate the 2020 election stand as one of the most reprehensible and anti-constitutional derelictions of duty by a Department of Justice official in many years. In December 2020, Clark sent his DOJ superiors a letter he had drafted for the highest Georgia state officials. The draft asserted falsely that the department was investigating irregularities in the 2020 election that may have affected its outcome. Clark wanted the department's leading officials to sign the letter, as well as similar letters for other states. Before sending the letters, Clark had engaged in several conversations with Trump who supported Clark's plan 
and was ready to appoint him the acting attorney general to execute it. At a tense three-hour meeting on January 3rd, DOJ leadership told Trump it would resign en masse if he went through with the plan. Trump backed down. What improprieties and crimes might Clark have committed? They fall into three categories. Violations of DOJ rules, violations of legal ethics rules, and federal crimes. DOJ officials preclude discussions of investigations with anyone in the White House, including the president. They also forbid taking any significant action near in time to an election that could influence that election. Finally, they preclude comments on pending investigations that have not reached charging decisions. The DOJ Office of the Inspector General is currently investigating Clark's possible violation of these rules. Bar rules applicable to lawyers like Clark forbid dishonest and misrepresentative behavior, including recklessly false statements. Lawyers are forbidden under ethical rules from engaging in conduct that seriously interferes with the administration of justice. Finally, Clark may have committed federal crimes, as alleged in a pending lawsuit brought by the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. First provisions of the Hatch Act make it a crime to try to coerce federal employees to engage in political activity. Second, civil rights law provisions make it a crime to conspire to oppress or threaten anyone in the free exercise of the right to vote. For Talking Feds, I'm David Johansson. Thank you very much, David Johansson, for explaining Jeffrey Clark to us. David is going to be the subject of a Showtime documentary film by no less than Martin Scorsese, co-directing with Emmy nominee David Tedeschi. Scorsese has already begun to shoot footage of Johansson, who still performs at New York's Cafe Carlisle earlier this year. Says Martin Scorsese, I've known David Johansson for decades, and his music has been a touchstone ever since I listened to The Dolls when I was making Mean Streets. So don't take my word for it. Take Martin Scorsese's, see this documentary, and by all means, go back and listen to the great albums of David Johansson, who was punk before punk was punk in the mid-70s in New York City. Hugely influential and creative performer. In future weeks, we'll delve more deeply into the different folks. The list could expand a little. Bill, you said in a tweet today you had gone to school on the three main ones. And without going way deep on each, there are some top line characteristics they have that I just wanted to serve up and ask how important they might be. The Sotomayor analogy here, Laura, would be that Brown Jackson was a public defender. So that might be something that figures in of the different kind of background. Uh, With respect to everybody on this podcast, I see three crimson and a bulldog. 
there may be an advantage to Mills that she's not from, oh my God, Harvard and Yale. I think Leandra Kruger, 45. That's a pretty good little chunk of time. And she's got bipartisan support, including from Paul Clement. And she argued 12 times before them. I just wanted to ask your thoughts, not to pick one or the other exactly, but about if you're the White House and you're thinking in these terms, how the different factors play out or what you think might really be most politically attractive, you know, a kind of a grab bag of traits up there. What do you think? How do you think the administration should evaluate them? Maybe I'll just say one thing and let these two say what should be done. But I think both Laura and Sheldon have studied the records much more than I have. But I was in a White House that selected two justices. Little things do matter. I mean, David Souter does not get on the court if John Sununu isn't chief of staff and doesn't really shepherd the way and reassure people. Now, I'm not sure we're in that kind of world anymore quite. It's so much more public these days, and it's not quite as much of an inside baseball game. And these people are all well-known and so forth. But I don't know. Does Merrick Garland have a closer relationship to one of these judges than another? Would Biden trust his judgment? I think, I think if he did, it would be Kruger, by the way. Yeah, well, I think ahead. it would be And would Joe Biden, who in my personal dealings with him over many, many years, has always had us both respect for high academic standing and he likes people who look at his cabinet full of people from Harvard and Yale and all this stuff. He also didn't go to Harvard or Yale, has a certain kind of, I'm a middle-class guy with what was it, Delaware and then Syracuse Law School, and that's just as good. And then Jim Clyburn calls him up. I could sort of see, if one convinced oneself that on the merits, they were very much in the same ballpark, so you're not giving up much, if anything, Could you convince yourself that someone like Judge Childs is an incredibly impressive story in a way that would be maybe worth giving a little extra on the scale? I don't know. Maybe those things don't matter at all. But I sort of think it is interesting to think about how Biden personally will think about it, how Ron Klain, Merrick Garland, White House counsel, there are a few people who will matter a lot probably in the internal deliberations. The person who matters the most in the internal deliberations is Dana Remus, the White House counsel. He's not consulting Merrick Garland. He's consulting her. She's been the right-hand person on all of these nominees. And if I was the White House counsel, I would say to him, you obviously have to pick Judge Jackson, because then we get another seat on the D.C. Circuit. Why would we not get two bites of the apple? She's already been confirmed. Lindsey Graham voted to confirm her. Let's just do that. That's the easy pick. That's what I was thinking when Bill was talking about 15 votes, because if you think that's a prospect, it matters less. If you're really talking 50-50, otherwise, I agree that Graham and Collins and Murkowski, they'll be very hard-pressed. Didn't help Bob Bork, if I could just point out, who was confirmed almost unanimously in 86 for the D.C. Circuit. Well, Breyer's story itself shows there's a weird kind of rhythm and push and pull to these things. So Breyer famously was top of the list, didn't have a good interview. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been eliminated. But her husband does a lobbying campaign and all of a sudden it's Tuesday and Wednesday and that stock kind of rises. They get talked into collectively the Mills story, for example, you know, since you you told me about the mustache, I think I saw a pursed lip, which I take as a kind of uh, denunciation of that line of thinking, Senator. No, I go with what Laura said. Which is they, they just got Katanya Brown Jackson. Look, I will say on the really insider, insider, which I am not and nobody is. That's another rule, by the way. Everyone who talks, nobody knows crap. And I only know that from the one or two times that I've been there. But I do think Kruger is slightly more inside. Uh, Katanya Brown Jackson has 
a pretty good but not great reputation on the district court. And Kukur has been very sort of middle of the road and incrementalist on the California Supreme Court. I think she'll have some pointy headed champions, though it does seem to me at the end of the day, the argument that you just made, you know, about Graham and Murkowski and Collins is going to be very hard to rebut. I mean, it'd be worth knowing whether Vice President Harris has a close relationship or not with Kruger, whom she presumably knows somewhat from California stuff. I guess she was the Attorney General of California when Justice Kruger joined the bench there. So again, this is where these kind of random things do matter. Having said that, I think at the end of the day, probably in this case, they want to have as strong a justice as possible who actually can be a strong justice on the court. Ultimately, you want to be changing the the character of the court. And these three all seem pretty strong to me, not knowing any of them and just looking at them from the outside. And it might be a little hard to decide among them, I suppose. That is what I mean. In the ultra snobby way, I think it could be a 99, 98, 90. And, you know, I do think if that really is the, the only criterion, and I tend to doubt it from the little I know of these circles, it would bring Kruger up to at least a tie for first. One minor thing to add to Laura's point is that Judge Brown Jackson has already been through the FBI full field background investigation. Yeah. Setting aside whether there might be anything in Judge Kruger's background or not, the fact that she's been through it recently gives the White House some confidence that the supplemental investigation to be done now to bring that one up to date is going to fit with the February timeframe the president has said he wants to have a decision made by. And the likelihood of this being undone by something unexpected is less because you have the existing circuit court BI done. And I think particularly if you're trying to move with some alacrity, that becomes a pretty significant Hurdle. It's a great point. I mean, how could you better snatch defeat from the jaws of victory than have something like this? I would just add, if, of course, the Democrats of the Biden administration were thinking like FDR thought, like real political Democrats, I will say what I said on Twitter, which outraged, I think, a lot of progressives and stuff. Of course, they should put Vice President Harris on the court. First of all, because I think the odds are she's not going to be president of the United States. She could be, but odds are not. She cares about these things. I think, in fact, if you care, as Senator Whitehouse does, about someone who's a little more real-world attitude, a little more, let's be honest, political attitude. Do we think Justice Jackson was such a bad choice? Do we think Justice Earl Warren was such a bad choice? Brennan? There are a heck of a lot of political types who ended up on the court who ended up being important justices. I think Harris could be that. And I don't think she's the strongest, if we can just be honest, in my opinion, successor to Biden in terms of running in 24. And then you get a clean choice to replace her in a totally unembarrassing way, so to speak. But no one thinks that way anymore. And I'm sure Biden isn't thinking that way. But if it were FDR, if it were LBJ, she would be on her way to the court. They would be thinking (laughs) about the strongest possible VP pick they could make. She would get confirmed, incidentally, by the Senate. And to to Bill's point, there's a theory of human behavior that politicking is our natural condition. (laughs) And if you take somebody from politics who's kind of gotten it out of their system, has gotten good at it, they don't have anything to prove any longer, they can get on a court and be a very effective, very balanced, very non-political justice. Whereas if it's your first chance to play in big league politics from behind your robe, it becomes like super appealing. And I think you see a lot of the politics on courts around the country come from people who don't have 
political experience, but find this taste of it irresistible. Laura, I suggest you and I remove ourselves from with this. We took a, a fast, <laughs> sharp detour at the end. Yeah, sorry about that. I just wanted to outrage a few of your listeners. I, know, I had originally conceived of this episode as being half about all the Trump January 6th stuff, and this was just too big an opportunity for our listeners. But I want to take like three minutes anyway. So just this morning, the January 6th committee subpoenas 14 state electors who were part of the, I'm sure there'll be a name for this soon, but this huge potential conspiracy that's been in plain sight for a year having to do with the forged certificates by Republican slates and states that Biden won. This is a wrenching change of gear down to second or reverse, but just want to go around the horn and ask your thoughts about this, I think, burgeoning case. I think, obviously, the fact that the committee has zeroed in on this is noteworthy, though not surprising. It's interesting that this is heating up now. As you said, Harry, this has sort of been operating in plain sight. None of this was really hidden. The Republican officials who signed it didn't lie about it. They seem to be totally open about it and bragging about it at times. Well, those are two different points, but yes. The most interesting part of it is, of course, every liberal on Twitter has been wondering, where is Merrick Garland? Turns out the Justice Department is very well aware of what's been going on, has received the referrals from the state attorneys general and other officials about this. And Lisa Monaco confirmed to my colleague Evan Perez this week that they're looking into it. So it's now reached the levels at which federal prosecutors are paying attention to it. And so for all of Rudy Giuliani's talk about trial by combat and all of the other nonsense that went on at the eclipse, it will be interesting if the phony elector scheme is actually the thing that provides the meat on the bones for prosecutors. Wouldn't it be? And by the way, on Monaco, their policy is not to comment, but they thought it was publicly important enough to confirm. If you look at what the allegations are, it steers you straight at 18 United States Code Section 1001, the false statement statute, which is bread and butter cases (laughs) that are easy to be made. And once you get somebody jacked up on one of those cases, the idea that they start to cooperate and that rolls, and then you feed that into what you're learning in the January 6th subpoenas, and you feed that into what's coming out in the insurrection civil lawsuits, where there's going to be discovery and the opportunity to dig in. And who knows, the Senate and House ethics investigations might actually be doing some investigating as to what the role of the members was in keeping the figurative gates open with the delay so the mob could get in. You've got an awful lot of information that is now going to start to flow. I mean, it was government. It wasn't a mob. It wasn't even a terrible mob trying to do terrible things. And it wasn't even a mob inspired by a demagogue which we've had before, that's bad, it should be held accountable at all. It was a plan. It was a plot. It was a conspiracy, and it went into the White House. It wasn't a bunch of Republicans and private lawyers and operatives and stock money groups. That's bad enough. They could be legally liable, too, of course. But it went Steve Miller working in the White House, not for the Republican National Committee, not for the Trump campaign, not for some Mar-a-Lago dark money pack said on January 6th, this is our plan. We have these slates of electors. It turns out they very much wanted the Justice Department to approve them. It turns out that it's related to Defense Department activities, perhaps with the Insurrection Act. So I think the degree to which it is a Watergate style, in this respect, more serious than Watergate, I would say, but into the White House type of conspiracy directed from the top has become much clearer over the last month or two or three. I think there was a lot of emphasis, understandably, on the drama of January 6th date, the insurrection, the storming of the Capitol. 
people now understand better, I think, and I think the committee probably deserves a fair amount of credit for this, that we had a plot from before November 3rd, really, but certainly beginning in a big way on the night of November 3rd at 2.30 a.m., November 4th, when Trump gives the speech, through January 6th and up till January 20th to some degree, to subvert the election, to overturn the election. And that, I think, is, is why the electors hit a core. It's not just a bunch of crowd boys who were ginned up by one speech that Trump or some idiot Mo Brooks gives. It was a real attempt to subvert an election. And don't forget that little character over at DOJ, Jeffrey Clark. And when he starts cooperating, it goes into grand jury. And Eastman. Yeah. It links up perhaps with the Eastman memo. But Clark was in the Justice Department. It is more like Haldeman and Mitchell and Kleindies. It's not just crackpot law professor from someplace near you, Harry, and stuff. Without regard to Trump's involvement, it seems to me, speaking as a former prosecutor, you got a lot of good cooperating witnesses out there. They're big shots in their states. They don't want to go down. We are out of time, man. I'd like to go for another hour. Both these stories, the little one we covered at the end, I think are going to get very big. And obviously the nomination will. Thank you so much, uh, Bill, Laura and Senator Whitehouse for being here on a momentous week. Thanks. It was fun. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you very much to Laura, Bill, and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last few days, a pretty long talk with Supreme Court expert Leah No Relation Littman in the wake of the Breyer announcement. And I think that discussion, by the way, addresses some of the points being raised in quick form on the cable TV stations in much more nuanced, detailed, and sophisticated manner. It's a really, I think, useful and informative discussion. We also just posted something about the infighting occurring among domestic terrorist groups, and I hosted my first ever Q&A for Talking Feds Insiders on Patreon. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there, and you can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Olivia Henriksen, Assistant Producer Matt McArdle, Sound Engineering by Adam Macias, David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And thank you very much to the great inimitable David Johansson for explaining to us the role of Jeffrey Clark in today's sidebar. And our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. 
Talk to you later.